I would say that we um, engage community leaders as well as people who represent the participant pool. Hello, I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the July 10th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. To assess for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar and previous webinars can be found under the resource tab. Today's learning objectives are describe the disparities in COVID-19 populations, discuss COVID-19 trends found within the Black and Latinx populations, and discuss strategies to mitigate and eliminate risk and disparities in these populations. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters, and are free of influence from Pfizer. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Awater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He will be interviewing Dr. Kathleen Page, an Assistant Professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. She will be discussing disparities and their impact on COVID-19 in the Latinx community. Thank you, Rachel, and I wanted to thank Dr. Kathleen Page for joining us, who's a an associate professor in our Division of Infectious Diseases of John, at Johns Hopkins here in Baltimore. Uh, Kathleen, you, you bring a, a wealth of expertise and in innovation, uh, often for more uh, disadvantaged groups, working for groups uh, in terms of healthcare. So I thought we might tackle two issues that are sort of large, but see what your thoughts are on that. The first has to do with sort of public policies and responsibilities, not only for government and society, perhaps for people that are uh, more socially disadvantaged. And then, and then uh, talk a little bit about research efforts because that's so important really for helping us advance and try to overcome the pandemic. So why don't we first start off with the concept that I think a lot of people have embraced early and that is a public charge for COVID. I mean, there's been stimulus checks um, there's been some guidance to employers and schools and institutions, as well as individuals to take uh, responsibility for mitigating risks and so on. What's your view, whether it's uh, for uh, Blacks or, or uh, the Latinx community or whatnot, um, what are some of the things that you feel from a very high level that are sort of forefront in your mind in terms of really still impeding a bit um, as to you know, helping groups, especially that now seem to make up so much of our hospitalized patients in many cities. Yeah, um, so yeah, thank you, Paul, for that question. I think, uh, you know, this um, COVID-19 has really unmasked uh, disparities in our system in, in ways that uh, 
we, you know, we, we've seen that with other infectious diseases, but it's really, it's been very remarkable um, and with COVID and, and so quickly uh, because it's progressed so quickly. Um, and I, when I say disparities, I also think that it's uncovered consequences of some of the policies that uh, we have. You asked about the public charge, so I'm going to speak very specifically about the impact on immigrants because that's, that's, that's what that uh, relates to. And also because, uh, as you know, there's been such a disproportionate impact in our system in Maryland and in other areas on Latinos and, and in particular Spanish-speaking Latinos. Um, so the public charge um, is this policy that sort of went up through various iterations over the last two years, but then finally was uh, approved on February 24th um, of this year, um, ironically right before COVID really became mm -hmm. uh, a huge epidemic in this country. Um, but, but, but basically what it says is that it's a policy directed at immigrants in this country who um, may be applying for a green card and then pathway to citizenship, and it counts against them, it counts against the application, the use of public benefits, such as food stamps or other things. Now, you know, many, many immigrants don't even have access to these benefits, but sometimes their kids do because their kids are American. And so, for example, immigrant parents may have American children and may be applying for help uh, in that way. For some people, when they first hear about this, they think, well, that, that makes sense. Like, why would, we, why would we take any immigrants here who are not making enough money, basically? And I guess the answer I would have is that, as, as many of you may know or not, um, immigrants in this country really uh, uh, provide many, many of the essential low-income jobs in this country um, have, uh, are really done by um, immigrants. And, and these include jobs such as in the service industry, in the restaurant industry, in the construction industry, but also, for example, healthcare aides um, who, who do an enormous job taking care of elderly people in this country who are American. And so my only comment about that is that the people who may need some extra help are not necessarily people who are not working. They are working. It's just that the issue here is that the jobs are very low paying. Now, having said that, um, what, what does this have to do with COVID? What has happened, and really we've seen that happening in the last two years, is that this policy has really dampened the use of, of services in general in the immigrant community. Uh, and although the policy specifically, if you talk to lawyers, really only impacts a very small group of patients, those that actually, uh, uh, groups of, of immigrants, those that are maybe undocumented but have a pathway to citizenship, or maybe they are documented and a pathway to citizenship, for most people that, especially those who are undocumented, this is not even an option. Uh, nonetheless, almost all immigrants in this country wish and dream of the, of the time that they will have legal status and can work here legally, and they recognize that that's uh, the best pathway to, to, to success. Um, so everyone has that dream. And what's happened is that that policy alone um, discouraged people all immigrants from using any sort of public service. And there's been good data documenting, for example, the disenrollment of American kids from, from Medicaid uh, and from um, food SNAP benefits and all that because their parents were immigrant and they were worried that they would, that would impact their future immigration status. So sorry for the long explanation, but that yeah, yeah. gives you a sense of what, uh, of what this uh, public charge uh, does. So when COVID-19 actually uh, came, there was a message in the, in the, in the um, governmental site saying, you know, don't worry about the public charge. You know, we've said all along that you can't seek 
uh, benefits or care or whatever, but in this case, please do because this is a public health emergency. The problem is um, that first of all, I'm not sure who goes to that site um, and, and listens to that. And also, you know, this message is coming from the same organizations that have not exactly instilled trust in this community. These are the, sa these are the same policies that have been anti-immigrant. So, you know, the, the reality is that most people have not gotten the message that, that it's okay to seek COVID care. And even if they've gotten it, they don't trust it because it's, it's, it's not inconsistent with what they've heard about immigrants for the last two to three years. That's an example of how our policies, um, which may look on the surface to have nothing to do with public health, um, but when you exclude a population from anything, from, from certain things, and, and when a public health emergency happens where public health, the, the, the whole definition of public health is that we're all interconnected and that the health of one person impacts the health of others, and, and COVID-19 has clearly um, shown us that, it's hard to respond because we need a unified response. We need to engage the whole community. And if some people are disengaged because they're hard to reach because they've never been engaged, or they may be engageable, but they don't trust the systems that are engaging them, it, it just becomes really, really tricky. Um, the other piece is access to healthcare, which again, this community has been excluded from. And so when they need to get care or when they get a call from the health department telling them that they're doing contact tracing, they just uh, may not trust that or may yeah. not seek care. And, and finally, I, I would say that the exclusion again of, of, of immigrants from so many things makes it difficult for them to um, access legal recourse even when they have a right to legal recourse. Um, and so, for example, in the occupational setting, we certainly have seen uh, that occupational exposures have been a big issue in this community. Um, you know, we've heard about the meat and poultry industry, but also in other settings where the, these workers are not necessarily given the adequate protections. But again, uh, they are unlikely to report this to authorities because any interaction with authorities to them may feel like a risk of, of exposure of exposing their own immigration status and potential deportation. So it, it's just like this confluence of, of, of circumstances that make it difficult for this community to advocate for themselves and, and, and easy to exploit and, and, and then create the conditions that lead to transmission. You know, there, there's just so many issues just even in the best of times that it, as you pointed out, it really magnifies at so many levels. And, and of course, people want to maintain their own safety and dignity for themselves and family members that they don't want to take risks. And unfortunately, I think we've seen time and again that people are not taking care of their underlying health issues, such as diabetes which seems to be such a big risk factor for uh, COVID-19 or, or, or if they are uh, coming to hospitals, only an extremis, you know, I mean, they have already have, you know, they're not coming at the first signs or seeking medical care, it's far longer. And especially now as we're beginning to have some treatment emergence, uh, I'm afraid some of these disparities might even grow more uh, in this case, um, you know, in terms of hospitalizations and, and mortality, which is, it's just so unfortunate, as you point out, given the, the, the public health aspects of trying to control this. So, Yeah, I, I think I would say that two key points for anyone who's taking care of patients like, the, like this in this situation, I would say that 
I think the two priorities that I hear are uh, money, and, and by money I mean like that, the, the concern that, that they will not be able to work and make it and, and feed their family, or that they could get bankrupt with a medical bill is, is really a huge deterrent to seeking services. And the other one is, is, is the fear of deportation and, and, or, and family separation. So, you know, family separation in particular is such a huge concern that, that people will not do things if they think it could uh, put them at risk for that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know. And I, and I think, you know, what everyone can do if you are taking care of patients or to try to incorporate some of these key messages and really just steward those and try to make sure the patient understands and, and maybe they could explain to other family members so that, you know, they have an example of, um, you know, uh, some of the services and support that might be available, even despite some of the challenges and and I think examples always speak uh, much more than words, and but we we still have to point those out and 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 tell people so that we can try to lower some of these invisible barriers that are really so important. Yeah, I think being explicit about it is critical because I would never I don't assume that people know this. In fact, I assume they don't know this. And mm -hmm. so while I don't uh, interrogate patients about their legal status, I don't think that's relevant. Um, I, I, I like to make general comments. I'm like, you know, I say, I'll say things like, a lot of people are worried about their medical bills, uh, but the good thing is that in this case, there's help. It doesn't matter if you have insurance or papers, I sort of throw it in there. So I think that that uh, is important to say, state explicitly that sometimes opens com uh, the conversation and patients will ask more questions. And if they're comfortable and they wanna do that, I, we can delve in more. But at least I feel like it's important that they hear it once. And I have to say that the relief that people sort of express when they hear that is, is remarkable. I mean, I, I have seen now, unfortunately, a lot of patients, well, fortunately that they're coming off the vent, but unfortunately that they were on the vent. Um, but, you know, the, it's, it's sort of uh, honestly heartbreaking that so many of them are asking, are worried about when can they go back to work and how are they going to pay for this? Mm -hmm. um, and that, you know, I think that's something that in the context of all that they're going through, we can reassure them. Um, and, you know, of course, talk to our own hospitals and make sure that that's happening. But, but there is, you know, the, the CARE Act, although it excludes, you know, these patients will not get the stimulus check. There is funding for the health care and the health care will be covered through that. Those are fantastic examples. I think we can all incorporate and try and remember. You know, on a separate kind of set of barriers, I, I think just to touch on a complex topic, but we're trying to learn about COVID-19 and find interventions against this novel coronavirus and, and make sure that it works, the, any kind of interventions work in all groups. And, and so many of our hospitalized patients now are um, uh, Blacks, uh, uh, members of the Latino community, and others, and and trying to engage in clinical research is is always a challenge at any time. Uh, but can you speak to just a couple of issues that you feel are important, uh, whether you're in an institution doing clinical studies or not? I think it's important because if if members of our community aren't being engaged, then then you're you know whatever results you have may not be as reflective. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is uh, this is such a, another really important point, and and especially with COVID, where we're we're learning everything so quickly, and we the the need for research is is essential. So I think it's a balance between it's it's critical uh, to be inclusive, and I really welcome uh, the emails I've gotten from many people who want to include. Uh, particularly, I get emails about including Spanish-speaking Latinos in, in research, and I think that is a welcome step. On the other hand, I, I have to say that uh, we need to do it well. Uh, in this community in particular, at least the community that I work with here in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, research uh, among Spanish-speaking Latinos has been limited. Um, in fact, you know, they, they frankly have been systematically excluded from many research trials because it just sometimes feels like it's too much work to do things in Spanish or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, but now, you know, uh, is a time to do that differently. But but what that means is that this is a, what I would call a research naive community. What does that mean? And it's also a community that's not only Spanish speaking, but also generally low literacy, has some difficulty, you know, has not engaged with the health system very much and, and less so with the research uh, system or research uh, activities. So it's really imperative that that we start from scratch in terms of explaining to people what what is research about, really making sure that people uh, understand the voluntary nature of research, that, you know, um, that it won't impact whether they access healthcare, their access to healthcare, or whether we treat them at Hopkins or not. Um, critical that we I, I would say that we um, engage community leaders as well as people who represent the participant pool and make sure that our consent forms are, are everything is in, is in language that is easily understandable. I have found that in taking care of um, uh, Latino immigrant patients, uh, especially those that you know, grew up in a different country where sometimes the medical system is very paternalistic um, so very top down, you know, you just do what the doctor tells you. Uh, the the worry here is that if a researcher comes and says, you know, you know, and then does a consent quickly, that the patient may may just say yes because they just are used to just doing whatever someone in a white coat tells them to do. And I and, and certainly I, don't, I think we all recognize that that's not how we want to engage our participants in research. And I think there's there's again the issues of mistrust and and, and communication. And I I can give a uh, a specific example, perhaps uh, to illustrate this. So we all are pinning our hopes on a vaccine. Like uh, having an effective vaccine could change everything uh, for, for COVID. You know, as these vaccines trials are coming to play, it's important that vulnerable and at-risk communities are included in the vaccine trials uh, for various reasons. One of them is because we, we want to make sure that the results are generalizable, but also because you know, is there a benefit to participation? Like we want to make sure that 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 not that community doesn't get excluded. Um, and so I, I feel strongly about that. On the other hand, I also recognize that some people, you know, like in any group, some people would never be part of a vaccine trial and some people would. And we just have to provide the information and uh, so in a way that people can really make that choice for themselves depending on their preference. Um, I have been, uh, as part of you know this this um, work that we are doing with immigrants, um, participating in a very local show called Somos Baltimore Latino that's in Spanish and it's every Friday and it's a question answer uh, where people call in and ask the doctor whatever question they have. 
and generally those questions have to do with care or whatever, you know. Uh, but a few weeks ago, the producer of this show called me and said, you know, we have to have an emergency show right now because there's this rumor that's going viral on Twitter or, or some social media that uh, patients that come, Latino and Black patients who come to hospital, not necessarily to Hopkins, but to hospitals, are getting injected and killed. And there's some experiment going. That, and so, you know, obviously this is false, false news. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of spread and, and, and sometimes in communities that have been uh, marginalized, uh, that may ring true to them. You know, they hear in the news that there's the blacks and Latinos are more likely to die in hospital and then they hear that there's this injection going on and they put two and two together and they think that this may be happening. So anyway, we had a little bit of an emergency doctor question and answer and, you know, the most helpful uh, part of that conversation was that as I was speaking and people were actually texting in their questions and what they had heard or whatever, we had people text in who had been patients at Hopkins and said, no, 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 I survived. They treat me. They did all these things. And this is how it was. And, and I, that was incredibly helpful and so much more helpful than me telling them, no, 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 don't worry, because why would they trust me? But right. what we heard from patients, they, um, I think that really change the tone of that conversation. Um, and I think the same with research, you know, I think there's gonna be, there's people right now who have engaged in research and have had a good experience and they can speak to that, uh, to the community. But I think again, always recognizing that some people, it's not gonna be for them and that's okay. That's the same yeah. as it is for us. You know, I, I think your points are really so sound. Uh, you know, I was a house officer in the 1980s and then um, predominantly a black population in hospital and that old chestnut um, that, you know, uh, patients were experimented in the hospital. Um, so don't go to that hospital because that's, you'll be experimented on, were quite prevalent. And, you know, some rightly represent fear. No one wants to go in the hospital. There's a lot of unknowns. You're not, you're not there. We work in it every day, right? But you know, they don't know, but a lot of it just reflects mistrust with institutions and communities. And I think, Kathleen, you've really done such wonders trying to help break down barriers and, and make institutions uh, that have been around a long time much more sensitive and engaged with communities as much as possible. I think we have so much more to do as recent events have uh, uh, documented across the United States, but uh, wanted to thank you for uh, 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 spending some time today to talk about these. I think I learned a lot and uh, hope to incorporate as much of what you said as possible. So really wanted to thank you. Well, I, I want to thank you, Paul, because I've learned so much from you that I guess this is payback. <laughs> 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 and thank you, Rachel, uh, for having us. Thank you, Dr. Page and Dr. Alwater for an enlightening discussion about a very important topic. As a reminder, to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. 
Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you.